I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome back. This will be episode 14, T.E. Lawrence and the Gorilla Mind, part one. How many parts this will be? I'm not quite certain. A little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to thank most every listener and uh, commenter that has gotten back to me with mostly positive comments at my email address, which is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. It should be easier to make comments and get access to my book recommendations and writing and stuff like that when in the very short-term future I start my Substack podcast entity. So that is a work to be completed. So let's get on with things. T.E. Lawrence. I have been fascinated by this enigmatic and towering historical figure since being a young lad. In 1962, David Lean, one of the best British directors in the 20th century, did a film that I think most everybody has seen called Lawrence of Arabia. I have seen it probably a dozen times. I've seen it in 70 millimeter on the big screen. What an experience. It's one of those films I would call as a non-Sinaiist and a non-expert or professional in the film industry, one of the most perfect films that I've ever seen. The cinematography, the music, the casting, the characterization synergy, the writing, the, uh, the directing, production values, everything just top-notch, just wonderful. Now, does the film take historical license with what actually happened with Lawrence? Of course it does. Does the film have to, in, by the way, a nearly four-hour runtime, tell that complete story of the Arab revolt? Sort of, with a lot of very interesting characterizations to the side. Uh, standout performances by Peter O'Toole and Alec Guinness as uh, King Faisal. Uh, just a wonderful film. So if you get a chance to watch that, take it, like all film, with a grain of salt as far as historical accuracy. But I think we'll find in this examina- this examination of Lawrence that a lot of the things that you see going on with Lawrence on film do reflect, maybe a pale shadow, but do reflect indeed who he was as a man at the time. As you'll recall, if you're a frequent listener to this podcast and you've listened to all of them, or maybe you've li- listened to selected ones, I refer to T.E. Lawrence as one of the trio of who I call Peak Gorilla from 1916 to 1922. The trio of Lawrence, Leto Vorbeck, and Michael Collins. And of course, the latter two are from Germany, East Africa, and Ireland, respectively. Now, I find him such a compelling character for so many reasons, and I was sort of trying to figure out how how am I going to outline and design this podcast series that I'm going to put together Because you'll note that this is part one, because not only a complex character, complex times, 
the almost century-long interregnum of world peace is interrupted in 1914. And then we have Lawrence on the stage in somewhat of a backwater in the World War I theater, much, by the way, like Leto Vorbeck, who finds himself larger than life and achieving things that no one could imagine he would have been able to pull off. So let's tackle the origin story here. T.E. Lawrence and fool Thomas Edward Lawrence, by name Lawrence of Arabia, also called from 1927 T.E. Shaw. He was born August 16, 1888, in Tremadoc, Cavernshire, Wales, and he died May 19, 1935. You will note that he's 47 years of age when he dies. Who knows what would have happened if he had lived longer? and lived to be an influence on World War II, but dying in 1935 doesn't allow that. He died in Cloud Hills in Dorset, England. He was a British archaeological scholar, military strategist, and an author best known for his war activities in the Middle East during World War I and just after it, and for his account of those activities in the turgid, thick, and philosophically difficult Seven Pillars of Wisdom, published in 1926, but nonetheless, worth the read if you can take the trudge. I have always considered Lawrence to be a medievalist, to be not only a champion of medieval Christendom, but highly educated in the crux, or shall we say collision, between Arabic Islamist and Western Christian cultures during the Crusades and such. Indeed, the year that T.E. Lawrence started studying at Oxford, the university decided that the history students could submit a thesis in addition to their final exams. Lawrence decided to do this, and in early 1910, he presented a thesis with words, sketches, and photographs entitled The Influence of the Crusades on Western Military Architecture to the End of the 12th Century. And I think that this was animated probably by his boyhood interest in chivalry and medieval architecture. And that, of course, was elemental to the subject that he chose, the development of medieval military architecture. He had been cycling out to visit the castles and abbeys for many years. And in 1906 and 1907, he had ridden around Brittany, Normandy, and the Loire in pursuit of them. Then, in 1908, in the summer between his first and second year at university, he made his monumental 2,500-mile ride around France, visiting some 50 castles and abbeys around France over two months. On his return from the trip, he declared that he had all the material he needed to write a thesis about medieval fortification in Western Europe. However, at the suggestion of Charles Bell at the Ashmolean Museum, the young Lawrence extended his subject to cover the Crusader castles in the Middle East proper. So by the, the end of 1908, he was already planning a walk for the following summer. And so eventually, during the summer of 1909, he visited some 100 castles around what is now Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. This trip led to his becoming an archaeologist in the Middle East following his graduation, along with a very competent cartographer. And eventually, in his being drawn into military intelligence, and eventually to the Arab Uprising in 1916. On a side note, a gentleman by the name of M.D. Allen, A-L-L-E-N, published a study, The Medievalism of T.E. Lawrence, 
and his lifelong interest in, medi- in the medieval world, especially medieval literature, and its considerable influence on his view of himself and of the Arabs with whom he fought in an archaic theater of war, and hence his own literary production, as we see in Seven Pillars of War. And indeed, we see this when it comes to Lawrence's behavior in the war. And also, when you read Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the content, the theme, the diction, it almost riffs on those medieval studies. Now, Alan begins with a brief biography of Lawrence. I bored you with that already. His early interest in things medieval and his somewhat controversial BA thesis on Crusader castles. Alan then reveals the extent to which Lawrence's ideas about honor, warfare, and chivalry in the Arab War against the Turks were shaped by his reading in medieval writings such as Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. Both, as he makes clear, were warrior societies dominated by horses. Now, Lawrence's reading in the 19th century medievalism is also explored, as in Tennyson's Ideals of the King and Ruskin's Writing on Art, where the parallel between Ruskin's ideas on ornament and Lawrence's ideas about the dignity of war are demonstrated. Now, Allen then continues on, and he identifies the medieval and neo-medieval texts of Seven Pillars of Wisdom and shows why and to what effect Lawrence borrowed from chivalric, neo-chivalric, and pseudo-chivalric works and sometimes transmogrified them and combined them, revealing Lawrence's greatest inspiration to be an English translation of the Molokat, which is, so to speak, the Arabic Beowulf. Allen sheds new light on many of these aspects, and I would urge you to uh, take a look at the book if possible, but getting a copy, of which I have, can be rather expensive. I probably have a dozen books in my T.E. Lawrence library. So, Lawrence ends up getting awarded his first-class degree for his studies, and his thesis was assessed as very remarkable, despite the fact that it was quite controversial, attempting in some aspects to overturn the general currency of thought at the time. His main thrust, that the early crusaders brought more military architectural ideas to the Levant than they brought back, has largely stood the test of time, though some other details in his thesis have been overtaken by later scholarship. And, you know, here you get the opportunity to really get close to better understanding T.E. Lawrence, then an upperclassman experiencing a grand and exciting three-month archaeological study in 1910, in which he submitted a lengthy and complex thesis in obtaining his B.A. degree, for which he was awarded the very remarkable uh, notice, and it is entitled quote, the influence of the Crusades on European military architecture to the end of the 12th century, end of quote. By the way, this thesis was published in 1936, shortly after his death, as Crusader Castles by Golden Cockerel Press. It was in two volumes then, the thesis and the letters. And it's been republished a number of times, and you can dig around and see if you can find a copy of it. I think that Jesus College at Oxford has the original examiner's copy in its T.E. Lawrence Library. In this podcast series, there will be no end of quotes of T. Lawrence himself because he was just an extraordinary writer who had an extraordinary imagination when it came to wielding these kind of quotes that just burn themselves into your brain. One of my favorites. Men have looked upon the desert as barren land, the freeholding of whoever chose. But in fact, each hill and valley in it had a man who was its acknowledged owner and would quickly assert the right of his family or clan to it against aggression, end of quote. So, Vietnamese General Jap, 
G-I-A-P, who defeated and vanquished both the French and the Americans, was asked who his greatest influence was in, condu in conducting guerrilla campaigns in Vietnam in an interview with the soon-to-be-famous French General Salon in 1946. Quote, my fighting gospel is T. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I am never without it. End of quote. Uh, nor am I. And I keep a copy both at home and at my office. My copy at home is my dog-eared and duct tape copy from my former days in the Army. I just adore this book, and I've read it three times. And it, it's normally a hard slog for readers who are unfamiliar with the British idiom and not well acquainted with the history that led to the Arab Revolt. And by the way, for the best introduction I have found to the mess that is now the modern Middle East, not only should one look at what... Lawrence wrote, but there's a great book by David Frompkins. It's called uh, A Peace to End All Peace, The Fall of the Ottoman Empire and the Creation of the Modern Middle East. Just tremendous. Just a, a great book, really put together. It, it sort of uh, demonstrates the origin story that led not only to the Middle East quagmire today, but how all of it was birthed for the most part in the worldwide spasm of World War I. Now, for those who take the time to read it, the distillate of his teaching from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the Arab Revolt, and the countless books that have been written on Lawrence in both biography and an examination of his military tactics and strategies, these can be found in his 27 articles. And this will comprise the lion's share of this part one podcast on T.E. Lawrence because I think it really lays the base plate of what Lawrence was trying to achieve as a guerrilla leader, an insurgent leader in the latter days of World War I to achieve the wild successes that he experienced. Now, mind you, some of those 27 articles have been overcome by time and efficacy, but some of them, like 12 and 22, are timeless and effective combat multipliers. Lawrence, of course, was Arab-centric in his nostrums, but many of these can be universally applied with little intellectual effort. So I'm going to read you verbatim these 27 articles, but I highly recommend that you print them out and study them. So here's Lawrence, and this is from August 1917 when he published these. Quote, the following notes have been expressed in commandment form for greater clarity and to save words. They are, however, only my personal conclusions. Lawrence, by the way. Arrived at gradually while working working in the Hejaz, and now put on paper as stalking horses for beginners in the Arab armies. They are meant to apply only to Bedou, the Bedouin. Townspeople or Syrians require totally different treatment. They are, of course, not suitable to any other person's need or applicable unchanged in any particular situation. Handling Hejaz Arabs is an art, not a science, with exceptions and no obvious rules. At the same time, we have a great chance there. The Sharif trusts us and has given us the position towards his government, which the Germans wanted to win in Turkey. If we are tactful, we can at once retain his goodwill and carry out our job. But to succeed, we have got to put it into all the interest and skill that we possess. Number one, go easy for the first few weeks. A bad start is difficult to atone for, and the Arabs form their judgments on externals that we ignore. When you have reached the inner circle in a tribe, you can do as you please with yourself and them. 
end of quote. My comment, it is vital when it comes to interacting with cultures that are alien to your own to wait, listen, pay attention, and don't suggest anything or act for the first few weeks or months. Number two from Lawrence. Learn all you can about your Ashraf and Bedou. Get to know their families, clans, and tribes, friends and enemies, wells, hills, and roads. Do all this by listening and by indirect inquiry. Do not ask questions. Get to speak their dialect of Arabic, not yours. Until you can understand their illusions, avoid getting deep into conversation, or you will drop bricks. Be a little stiff at first. End of quote. My comment, of course you'll be a little stiff at first because you're British. Number three, in matters of business, deal only with the commander of the army, column, or party in which you serve. Never give orders to anyone at all and reserve your directions or advice to the CO. However great the temptation, for efficiency's sake, of dealing with his underlings, your place is advisory and your advice is due to the commander alone. Let him see that this is your conception of your duty and that his is to be the sole executive of your joint plans. End of quote. My comment, of course, and this is universal, east, west, this is the way to properly make assessments to lead to command, to make sure that there is a unity of command. Number four, win and keep the confidence of your leader. Strengthen his prestige at your expense before others when you can. Never refuse or quash schemes he may not put forward, but ensure that they are put forward in the first instance privately to you. Always approve them, and after praise, modify them insensibly, causing the suggestions to come from him until they are in accord with your own opinion. When you attain this point, hold him to it, keep a tight grip of his ideas, and push them forward as firmly as possible, but secretly, so that to one but himself is aware of your pressure. End of quote. And of course, we find this throughout our lives, whether professional or within families, the more credit that you give to people who are your seniors, maybe laterally um, colleagues of yours, or even subordinates, the more credit that you give them and the more it seems as if all the good ideas that germinate germinate from them and not you, the more loyalty you will divine from them. Number five, remain in touch with your leader as constantly and unobtrusively as you can. Live with him, that at mealtimes and at audiences you may be naturally with him in his tent. Formal visits to give advice are not so good as the constant dropping of ideas and casual talk. When stranger sheikhs come in for the first time to swear allegiance and offer service, clear out of the tent. If their first impression is of foreigners and the confidence of the Sharif, it will do the Arab cause much harm. No comment from me. Number six, be shy of too close relations with the subordinates of the expedition. Continual intercourse with them will make it impossible for you to avoid getting behind or beyond the instructions that the Arab CO has given them on your advice. And in so disclosing the weakness of his position, you altogether destroy your own. Again, my comment is, you, especially in this particular case, being an Englishman who comes into an alien Arab culture, if you make yourself into an alien interrupter and, and someone who doesn't quite understand or have the cultural IQ of how they work, isolation of your ideas and isolation of you from them is something that could very well happen. Number seven, 
Treat the subchiefs of your force quite easily and lightly. In this way, you hold yourself above their level. Treat the leader of a Sharif with respect. He will return your manner, and you and he will then be alike and above the rest. Precedence is a serious matter among the Arabs, and you must attain it. End of quote. My comment, honor in Muslim culture is of the most paramount importance, and it is embraced by everybody throughout the entire sphere of their influence, vertically and horizontally. Number eight, your ideal position is when you are present and not noticed. Do not be too intimate, too prominent, or too earnest. Avoid being identified too long or too often with any tribal shake, even of CEO of the expedition. To do your work, you must be above jealousies, and you lose prestige if you are associated with a tribe or clan and its inevitable feuds. Sharifs are above all blood feuds and local rivalries and form the only principle of unity among the Arabs. Let your name, therefore, be coupled always with the Sharifs and share his attitude towards the tribes. When the moment comes from action, put yourself publicly under his orders. The Bedu will then follow suit, end of quote. My comment on this is that, of course, this is the way you would form practically any organization or unit. Number nine, magnify and develop the growing conception of the Sharifs as the natural aristocracy of the Arabs. Intertribal jealousies make it impossible for any sheikh to attain a commanding position. And the only hope of union in nomad Arabs is that the Ashraf be universally acknowledged as a ruling class. Sharifs are half-townsmen, half-nomad, in manner and life, and have the instinct of command. Mere merit and money would be insufficient to obtain such recognition, but the Arab reverence for pedigree and the prophet gives hope for the ultimate success of the Ashraf. End of quote. No comment. Number 10, call your Sharif Sidi in public and in private. Call other people by their ordinary names without title. In intimate conversation, call a sheikh Abu Nad. Ahu Alia, or some other similar by name. No comment. Number 11. The foreigner or Christian is not a popular person in Arabia. However, friendly and informal the treatment of yourself may be, remember always that your foundations are very sandy ones. Wave a Sharif in front of you like a banner and hide your own mind and person. If you succeed, you will have hundreds of miles of country and thousands of men under your orders. And for this... It is worth bartering the outward show. End of quote. Number 12, cling tight to your sense of humor. You will need it every day. A dry irony is the most useful type. A repartee of a personal and not too broad character will double your influence with the chiefs. Reproof, if wrapped up in some smiling form, will carry further and last longer than the most violent speech. The power of mimicry or parody is valuable, but use it sparingly for wit is more dignified than humor. Do not cause a laugh at a Sharif's expense, except among Sharifs. End of quote. Number 13. Never lay hands on an Arab. You degrade yourself. You may think the result an obvious increase of outward respect a gain to you, but what you have really done is build a wall between you and their inner selves. It is difficult to keep quiet when everything is being done wrong, but the less you lose your temper, the greater your advantage. And then... You will not go mad yourself. Number 14. While very difficult to drive, the Bedu are easy to lead. If you have patience to bear with them. The less apparent your interferences, the more your influence. 
They are willing to follow your advice and do what you wish, but they do not mean you or anyone else to be aware of that. It is only after the end of all annoyances that you find at bottom their real fund of goodwill. Number 15. Do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than that you do it perfectly. It is their war, and you are there to help them, not to win it for them. Actually, also, under the very odd conditions of Arabia, your practical work will not be as good as, perhaps, you think it is. End of quote. My comment, I do wish that we had taken number 15 under advisement in both Iraq and Afghanistan and the further adventures in Yemen, Syria, and the Horn of Africa. Number 16, if you can, without being too lavish, forestall pre presents to yourself. A well-placed gift is often more effective in winning over a suspicious shake. Never receive a present without giving a liberal return. But you may delay this return while letting its ultimate certainty be known if you require a particular service from the giver. Do not let them ask you for things, since their greed will then make them look upon you only as a cow to milk. End of quote. Number 17. Wear an Arab headcloth when with the tribe. Bedu have a malignant prejudice against the hat and believe that our persistence in wearing it, due probably to British obstinacy of dictation, is founded on some immoral or irreligious principle. A thick headcloth forms a good protection against the sun, and if you wear a hat, your best Arab friends will be ashamed of you in public. End of quote. Number 18. Disguise is not advisable, except in special areas. Let it be clearly known that you are a British officer and a Christian. At the same time, if you can wear Arab kit when with the tribes, you will acquire their trust and intimacy to a degree impossible in uniform. It is, however, dangerous and difficult. They make no special allowances for you when you dress like them. Breaches of etiquette are not charged against a foreigner are not condoned to you in Arab clothes. You will be like an actor in foreign theater, playing a part day and night for months without rest and for an anxious stake. Complete success, which is when the Arabs forget your strangeness and speak naturally before you, counting you as one of themselves, is perhaps only attainable in character. While half successes, all that most of us will strive for, the other costs too much, is easier to win in, Brit in British things, and you yourself will last longer physically and mentally in the comfort that they mean. Also, then the Turks will not hang you when you are caught. End of quote. Number 19. If you wear Arab things, wear the best. Clothes are significant among the tribes, and you must wear the appropriate and appear at ease in them. Dress like a Sharif if they agree to it. Number 20. If you wear Arab things at all, go the whole way. Leave your English friends and customs on the coast and fall back on Arab habits entirely. It is possible, starting thus, level with them. For the European to beat the Arabs at their own game, for we have stronger motives for our action, and put more heart into it than they. If you can surpass them, you have taken an immense stride toward complete successes. But the strain of living and thinking in a foreign and half-understood language, the savage food, strange clothes, and stranger ways, with the complete loss of privacy and quiet, and the impossibility of ever relaxing your watchful imitation of the others for months on end provides such an added stress to the ordinary difficulties of dealing with the Bedou, the climate, and the Turks, that this road should not be chosen without serious thought. Number 21. Religious discussions will be frequent. 
Say what you like about your own sides and avoid criticisms of theirs, unless you know that the point is external, when you may score heavily by proving it so. With the Bedou, Islam is so all-pervading an element that there is little religiosity, little fervor, and no regard for externals. Do not think from their conduct that they are careless. Their conviction of the truth of their faith and its share in every act and thought and principle of their daily life is so intimate and intense as to be unconscious unless roused by opposition. Their religion is as much a part of their nature to them as is sleep and food. My comment is, while one may look down on other religious practices, political practices, whatever the case may be, if one is involved in prosecuting an insurgency or a guerrilla movement, and you are advising that movement, the very worst thing you can do is to belittle the very ideology that activates and animates them as a people. Number 22, do not try to trade on what you know of fighting. The Hejaz confines, confounds ordinary tactics. Learn the Bedou principles of war as thoroughly and as quickly as you can. For till you know them, your advice will be no good for the Sharif. Unnumbered generations of tribal raids have taught them more about some parts of the business than we will ever know. In familiar conditions, they fight well, but strange events cause panic. Keep your units small. Their raiding parties are usually from 100 to 200 men, and if you take a crowd, they only get confused. Also, their sheikhs, while admirable company commanders, editor editorial note, a company command is approximately 100 to 150 individuals universally, are too set to learn to handle the equivalents of battalions or regiments. Don't attempt unusual things unless they appeal to the sporting instinct Bedu have so strongly. Unless success is obvious. If the objective is a good one, booty in their case, they will attack like fiends. They are splendid scouts. Their mobility gives you the advantage that will win this local war. They make proper use of their knowledge of the country. Don't take tribesmen to places they do not know. And the gazelle hunters, who form a proportion of the better men, are great shots at visible targets. A sheikh from one tribe cannot give orders to men from another. A sharif's. A sharif is necessary to command a mixed tribal force. If there's plunder in prospect and the odds are all equal, you will win. Do not waste Bedu attacking trenches. They will not stand casualties. And in trying to defend a position, for they cannot sit still without slacking. The more unorthodox in Arab your proceedings, the more likely you are to have the Turks cold, for they lack initiative and expect you to. Don't play for safety. Number 23. The open reason that Bedu give you for action or inaction may be true, but always there will be better reasons left for you to divine. You must find these inner reasons. They will be denied, but are nonetheless in operation before shaping your arguments for one course or another. Illusion is more effective than logical exposition. They dislike concise expression. Their minds work just as ours, but on a different premise. There is nothing unreasonable, incomprehensible, or inscrutable in the Arab. Experience them, and knowledge of their prejudices will enable you to foresee their attitude and possible course of action in nearly every case. End of quote. My comment, we must remember that in the Middle East and in pre-literate cultures or cultures for whom silent reading is not taken by the majority of the people in the country and oral history and ruminations on 
how far one's clan or blood goes back, those parts of their brain may be more expansive and mature than the Western silent reading portions of the brain. While they may not have that, when it comes to oral history, I can tell you from my experience in Afghanistan that I have had the privilege of speaking with people who can go back almost over a dozen generations and describe in detail the times they lived in, who they were, how many children they had, who their parents were, what they did, and how they conducted themselves. Now, 24, do not mix Bedou and Syrians or train men and tribesmen. You will get work out of neither, for they hate each other. I have never seen a successful combined operation, but many failures. In particular, ex-officers of the Turkish army, however Arab in feelings and blood and language, a.k.a. Ottomans, are hopeless with Bedou. They are narrow-minded in tactics, unable to adjust themselves to a regular warfare, clumsy in Arab etiquette, swollen-headed to the extent of being incapable of politeness to a tribesman for more than a few minutes, impatient and usually helpless without their troops on the road and in action. Your orders, if you were unwise enough to give any, would be more readily obeyed by Bedouins than those of any Mohammedan Syrian officer. Arab townsmen and Arab tribesmen regard each other mutually as poor relations, and poor relations are much more objectionable than poor strangers. End of quote. Number 25. In spite of ordinary Arab example, avoid too free talk about women. It is as difficult a subject as religion and their standards are so unlike our own that a remark harmless in English may appear as unrestrained to them as some of their statements would look to us if translated literally. Number 26. Be as careful of your servants as of yourself. If you want a sophisticated one, you will probably have to take an Egyptian or a Sudani. And unless you are very lucky, he will undo on trek much of the good you so laboriously affect. Arabs will cook rice and make coffee for you and leave you if required to do unmanly work like cleaning boots or washing. They are only really possible if you are an Arab kid. A slave brought up in the Hejaz is the best servant, but there are rules against British subjects owning them, so they have to be lent to you. In any case, take with you an Igali or two when you go up country. They are the most efficient couriers in Arabia and understand camels, end of quote. And last but not least, number 27, quote, the beginning and ending of the secret of handling Arabs is unremitting study of them. Keep always on your guard. Never say an unnecessary thing. Watch yourself and your companions all the time. Hear all that passes. Search out what is going on beneath the surface. Read their characters. Discover their tastes and their weaknesses. Keep everything you find out to yourself. Bury yourself in Arab circles. Have no interest and no ideas except the work in hand. So that your brain is saturated with one thing only, and you realize your part deeply enough to avoid the little slips that will counteract the painful work of weeks. Your success will be proportioned to the amount of mental effort you devote to it. End of quote. So I urge all of my listeners to print out a copy of this, uh, read it again, then read it again, digest it, contest it, interrogate it. It's a, um, a terrific little checklist that doesn't have to be taken in sequence of just how to conduct oneself in an insurgency. I say again, an insurgency, not a counterinsurgency, because this is precisely what Lawrence was doing, was condu- conducting a guerrilla movement. And one of my favorite quotes of all time from T.E. Lawrence, 
from Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Quote, All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dream with open eyes to make it possible. So Lawrence discovered that successful insurgencies must retain the initiative and establish solid support among the mass base for all their actions. Now, whether we examine his successes against the Turks, the Irish divorce from the United Kingdom, 1916 to 1922, or the Basque successes against the Spanish government to carve out their semi-autonomous provinces in northeastern Spain, the initiative must be seized and retained. This initiative, as Lawrence demonstrated, can be maintained on a shoestring. The force calculus for insurgencies is a meager ratio compared to the forces counterinsurgency and conventional forces, especially when combined, must maintain to defeat incipient or long-term guerrilla forces, as I've outlined in previous episodes. You know, the IRA in both its pre- and post-World War II configurations fielded less than 1,000 active fighters at peak strength against tens of thousands of deployed British and Northern Irish contingents. German Colonel Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck fought more than a half million deployed British and Allied forces to a standstill in German East Africa for nearly four years during World War I with a force that rarely numbered more than 10,000 at one point had 1,200 effectives left. No less than 127 general officers failed to vanquish him. And by the conclusion of the war, as I have hinted at earlier in other episodes, he remained the only German general. He was pro promoted in abstention in 1917 to be undefeated on earth, on earth in 1918. He sought to be self-sufficient and managed to manhandle naval guns off the ill-fated Konigsberg and the Rufshi all the way up the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. So Lawrence is not only a great student of the Arab Revolt and a great leader as a result of being a great student of the Arab Revolt, but Lawrence provides us watchwords, discussion, intellectual heft, and baseline military tactics for operational success with an insurgency against powerful and usually numerically superior forces. You know, it illustrates that much like the irregular actions in both the first 18th century and second 19th century American revolutions, a tremendously small number of active fighters and triggermen can cause a disproportionate headache to large formations of conventional armed forces arrayed against them. Lawrence, of course, took advantage of this against massive Turkish forces in the theater that he fought in World War I. Ulysses S. Grant had to take huge chunks of his fighting forces and devote them to protection of his lines of communication, his supply during his siege, and investment of Vicksburg. I'd also suggest that Napoleon was not necessarily wholly defeated by Wellington at Waterloo in 1815, so much as emasculated by French, Southern, and Spanish guerrillas in his lines of communication after his atrocities and overreach enraged the local populations of these areas. Before 1850, France was not the monolithic nation-state we are accustomed to today. There were areas of it, like Germany, that did not even share dialects of language. Now, Lawrence paid attention to these details and more. He studied the culture and the history deeply. He was a brilliant and eccentric scholar who I would suggest being steeped in medievalism gave him an edge in understanding the, di the dynamics of the war he was waging with the Arab indigenous forces against the Turks and at times against British post-war interest. 
He delegated authority to tribal and clan leaders in ways that increased its combat and mission effectiveness. He deferred to local authority to develop strongholds and effective placeholders when his mobile forces pursued other targets. You know, if, if you carefully examine his articles and replace the use of Ashraf and Bedu with other ones for other conflicts, the tenets become universal. Assignations for the leveraging of cultural intelligence for fighting effectiveness and combat power. I hope to develop a future compendium that examines every article in detail. But brevity dictates that I entertain just a few examples today. Let's draw one in particular, number 14. And I hate to belabor this, but I am going to repeat the quote. Quote, while very difficult to drive, the Bedou are easy to lead, if you have the patience to bear with them. The less apparent your interference is, the more you influence. They are willing to follow your advice and do what you wish. But they do not mean you or anyone else to be aware of that. It is only after the end of all annoyances that you find at bottom their real fund of goodwill. You know, Lawrence is cataloging what at first glance appears to be an observation savvy only to the tribes he's working with, but it makes perfect sense in almost every Western situation. Why American forces in the Middle East, who are the alleged coin experts, fail to grasp the importance of discrete stakeholdership in the forces they are mentoring to fight the indigenous fight, it's simply beyond me. In one successful insurgency after another, which is, at their essence, full contact sports to wrest control of a nation or parts of it from the previous insurgency, the mass base and its acquiescence to the insurgents will determine their success. Once the moral high ground is lost by either antagonist, the fight will be about legitimacy for the present government or the aspirants who seek to replace it or divorce a part of the country from its suzerainty. And again, I wanted to emphasize on Article 22, but because of the length of it, I'm not going to read it again. But Article 22 speaks volumes about the importance of local traditions and what may constitute a military maturity that in Western eyes is unfamiliar and seems on its face absurd. Remember, after two decades in Afghanistan, the ignominious departure, for, for those last 10 years, there was no safety on the roads for Allied occupiers, nor did the enemy afford the military hyperpower a set-piece engagement or lucrative target sets by gathering or bundling in single places. You'll notice a disproportionate number of hits in the last few years on the logistical tales, such as communications or fuel notes. The Mujahideen and all the, 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 uh, the entire assemblage of resistance forces from east to west, north, north to south, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, know that they cannot defeat the Allied forces in stand-up fights, so they take the fight to the weaknesses which become apparent to them over time through careful observation and canvassing of sympathetic members of the mass base in locations across the terrain. You know, e even our much ballyhooed victory over Muslim rebels in 1902 is rather premature when one considers the no-go areas in the Philippine Muslim strongholds like Mindanao on the western half of the island. There have been no Muslim insurgencies defeated since the end of World War II. Let me know if you find one. None. Like General Jap, who I mentioned earlier in Vietnam, they too pay attention to Lawrence. They realize that the British were defeated not once, but twice in Afghanistan. The Russians follow their lead, and then America. Much like the dull schoolboys we were following, the French and Indochina. Thought, technological, and economic superiority trumped all other aspects of military victory. Not. America is defeated by little known law. And that would be Bupert's Law of Military Topography 
which dictates that most mountainous terrain held by people who are savvy riflemen cannot be militarily defeated, whether it be the Chechens, the Swiss, or the Afghans. This may be one reason why the Appalachians in the U.S. were not fully tamed until about the 1930s. One may find few historical instances where they, this may not be true, but then there are dozens of other examples that prove it out. I urge all my listeners to take a look at Zomia, which we will cover in a future episode. That is Z-O-M-I-A in Southeast Asia. Now, Lawrence provides a terrific blueprint for how to conduct a proper insurgency. Pay attention. Take notes. You win. Don't pay attention. As a great power, you'll pay the price. This is Bill Bubert, and that is the conclusion of this podcast. I would appreciate any comments, suggestions, remarks you may have sent to me at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. This is Bill, out.